Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. And I'm Steve Bird. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So how do you decide decide whether you're going to have your last name in there or not? I mean, I decide because I just do whatever you said. James always complains when, uh, you know, obviously here we have the same last name. James and I have different last names. And James always complains when I don't do uh, last names. So I'm recording Secrets of Story tomorrow. So I've got to get, I've got to prepare myself. I've got to get in the habit of doing my last name. Okay, everybody, we are going to jump back in with the second half of January 1965. We are happy to finally be moving on to 1965 after getting bogged down in 1964. Let's go ahead and move on to Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. And we see on the cover, uh, the death of Sony Stark at the hands of the Mandarin is in one inset panel. And another inset panel says, the strength of the sumo, a debt is repaid in battle-torn Vietnam. And we see Captain America fighting a sumo wrestler in Vietnam, which already is letting you know that there will be some pan-Asian mix-up going on here so (laughs) we then go ahead and jump into the iron man story it is unfortunately written by stanley with pencils by don heck and inks by dick airs and really the art just does not look very good in this issue airs and heck are not an ideal combo heck is always better when he inks himself and heck is really not doing a great job on the pencils in this issue and errors is not helping matters much. In Avengers in coming months, I'm going to have some real problems with the combo of Heck and Ayers. This one is better than I usually expect from them being paired together. I yeah. mean, you know, that, that's, that's, that's grading on a curve, but I'll just put it out there. So we begin with Pepper and Happy are resigning. They still think that Iron Man has killed their boss or mysteriously made their boss disappear. And so they are quitting in disgust. And then they're like, now we're going to investigate what really happened. It's like, uh, wouldn't you want to keep your jobs if you were going to investigate what really happened? And then they go to the cops and tell the cops, uh, hey, you got to do something about it. The cops are like, uh, what do you mean? We don't even have any evidence of a crime. Happy then decides, well, I guess the next thing to do is to break into Tony Stark's house and see if we can find any evidence there. So then he breaks into the house only to find Tony Stark. They're in bed recuperating and says, of course, it's me, you big lug. Didn't Iron Man tell you not to worry about me? Yeah, but we didn't believe him. We thought, next time, don't think. I told you Iron Man could be trusted. So then Happy, thankfully, this is not just like a Happy has to get everyone to take his word for it type situation. Happy calls Pepper over. Pepper talks to Tony. Then they call in all the press and the cops. The cops all talk to Tony. Everybody talks to Tony. Everything's all on Yuri. Seemingly, this... Uh, drama from the last several issues is over. However, just as everybody is leaving the house, the Mandarin shows up in a flying saucer and shoots a big laser from space down to Tony's house and destroys it just when Tony has shown everybody in the world that he is bedridden in this house. And then the house gets destroyed. So then suddenly everybody is now convinced that Tony Stark is dead once again. And this whole sequence is taken almost, not verbatim, but, you know, very whole in the Iron Man 3 movie. Yeah, I guess it is similar. He is at home. He, you know, the Mandarin comes, blows up his house. Everyone thinks he's dead. (laughs) It's it's, it's right there. Yeah, it's all right there. So then (laughs) Iron Man shows up to go like, yeah, it's not my fault Tony Stark's dead. Like, Iron Man isn't attempting to go like, no, Tony Stark isn't dead. But he's like, uh, forget it. I'm not getting back on that whole rigmarole. 
I, uh, I'm just going to let everyone think Tony Stark's dead. And meanwhile, he's like, I'm going to go track down the Mandarin. We had a funny sequence of Happy looking out over a cliffside saying, I've got to accept it. The boss is dead. According to Mr. Stark's will, Iron Man is in charge. He says, Pepper and me can have our jobs back. So I'll be able to, I'll be with Pep without Mr. Stark cutting in. So I got nothing to worry about. Everything's great. Sob. Just great. So then <laughs> Iron Man decides, realizes the Mandarin must have done this, decides to go find him. So again, we get this issue, which again came up. Uh, I've mentioned before on this podcast that this came up in the deleted scenes of the first Iron Man movie where they're like, can Iron Man just fly halfway around the world to go confront the Mandarin? Or does he have to somehow get there in a plane and then become Iron Man? Well, this is the weirdest possible solution. They have him get dressed up as Iron Man and then put on makeup on top of the Iron Man armor so that he appears to be a big burly guy with a bowler hat and a trench coat and white gloves and a bearded mustache who is blustering onto the plane and the stewardesses are like, it's so warm in the plane and yet the bearded man won't remove his coat. Oh, well, it takes all kinds, I guess. And suddenly, and this is sort of done off panel, he demands to jump out of the plane and the burly man jumps out of the plane. The presumably clanking burly man jumps out of the plane and uh, seemingly to his death. I didn't think that that was over his mask. I thought that he had his attache case with him and that he basically put on the mask uh, when he jumped out of the plane. But, I mean, it's really not important what whatsoever. Uh, but I will point out that this was in, what, late 64 when this would have actually been published. And in 68 through 72, there was a massive spike in plane hijackings. And so that was like four years after this. Uh, is when that started. And apparently lots of them were like basically robberies. And then they would go and, you know, hold up people on the plane and then go and open the escape hatch out the back and have a parachute and parachute out. This was, this is a regular thing, not just D.B. Cooper. He was just the greatest of them, but uh, this would be in a few years. So even, even, you know, not just post 9-11, but even, you know, five years later, this probably would have been something that would have gotten somebody looked at a little bit more. So then Iron Man somehow manages to finally make it to the Mandarin's palace. Uh, He sees a huge giant outside dressed up in monk's robes and thinks it's a robot, but then it beats him up and he says, oh, no, no. There's endless confusion as to whether this is a robot or not. Convinces himself it's not a robot. Somehow that helps him get defeated. And then the Mandarin's like, he didn't know that you really are a robot. And then the Mandarin... Iron Man wakes up. The Mandarin has tied him up somehow, which you wouldn't think would do much good against Iron Man. And then the Mandarin says, now I will tell you my origin. And then we cut, we end on a cliffhanger. As and the Mandarin then, he Man <laughs> then he started monologuing. Then he started monologuing. Exactly. A perfectly serviceable issue. As you say, it does get turned into Iron Man 3 to a certain extent. So it gets some points for that because that's a fun movie. But it sort of brings to a nice culmination all of the back and forth about Pepper and Happy not trusting Iron Man, which sort of reaches its apotheosis here. And I'm looking forward to the Mandarin's origin, so it's perfectly fine. Yep, absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to Captain America. So Captain America, here we are in Vietnam, and it's interesting. There's a general sense here that the Viet Cong is a legitimate organization. We begin with, I mean, I think that the the general sense in America at the time was that, oh, this was all basically, you know, the red Chinese 
were taking over the peaceful people of Vietnam. And there wasn't really any such thing as the Viet Cong. There was no native resistance in within the country of Vietnam to the American presence. But no, this is, they're given a lot of respect in this issue. So the storyline here is that Cap was saved by a bike serviceman in World War II. And now that bike serviceman's younger brother is an airman who has been being held captive by the Viet Cong, not the North Vietnamese, in Vietnam. And now Captain America has to go parlay with them to try to secure the release of the brother of the man who saved him, which is a good, you know, they've had a hard time coming up with ways to come up with Captain America stories. And this is a good natural Captain America story. This is obviously it's very problematic to have him start fighting in Vietnam. That was problematic war and probably not good long-term plan to have him be fighting there regularly, but just for a one-off mission where he is just fulfilling a personal debt it works to send him there. But it's interesting. So on the first page, he is leaping into the story, leaping into action as he is visiting this, uh, the last person, the communist Viet Cong, expect to see on the battlefield of Vietnam is Captain America. But here he is and away we go. But as he's leaping in, he's got his shield in his hand and he says, hold your fire. Can't you see I'm unarmed? And it's like, you're unarmed, dude. Your shield is one of the (laughs) all-time most offensive weapons in existence. Like, you just go through your whole life going like, what? You can't shoot at me. I'm unarmed. I've just got my shield. And then whap, 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 you just throw your shield at everybody and knock them out. Yeah, pretty much. He allows himself to be taken prisoner by the Viet Cong. They say, oh, well, you have to fight us a little bit first before we let you meet our general, which he happily does. And then impresses them enough where then he's taken deeper into the sort of Viet Cong village to meet the general. He sees the black service man, who, Jim Baker, who he's come to rescue. And then they bring the general out. And then you get to the big problem with this issue is that the Vietnamese general, the Viet Cong general, is a sumo wrestler, which, of course, <laughs> sumo wrestling, not actually a Vietnamese martial art. Hey, it's all the same. You know, the Mandarin is a master of karate. Yes, true. Not Kung Fu. Karate. Not Kung Fu. Captain America now has to fight the sumo, which is makes for a nice fight because he really never seems to have the upper hand in this fight. The sumo is really taking it out of him to the extent where Captain America is basically like, yep, I am losing this fight. I am running away. And then he grabs Jim Baker and frees him. They are just running like crazy. And then he finally just he defeats the sumo wrestler by running through his legs. And uh, then the Sumo Wrestler sort of then angrily like brings down the whole building on top of himself as Captain America runs through his legs. And then Captain America escapes with the airman who says, Cap, I don't know how to begin to thank you for it. And Captain America says, stow it, boy. Oh, not good that he's calling him boy. Stow it, boy. The plane's so noisy, I can't hear a word you're saying. And that's the end of the issue. I think that this was a good issue. In some ways, this is Captain America dealing with fallout from World War II and dealing with messier politics of the world as it is now is going to be a big driver of Captain America stories going forward for the next 60 years. Sort of that conjunction of I'm sort of the person who deals with Fallout from World War II stories, and I'm the person who deals with juxtaposes that simpler good war with the messier wars America is fighting now is something that will come up a lot. And I think this is a good story. Yeah, I really like this. And yeah, it, uh, that's a good point that you made about uh, this being sort of the what will actually work for Captain America going forward. It's not like they're like, and we're just going to be on that from this issue on, but this is the first time they really hit on this concept of the character in modern times that would end up propelling it. 
forward. That would allow him to be relevant, I guess, in a 1960s world. I think in one of the, in a recent episode, I pointed out that there was a, I think it was a cop in Spider-Man who, or maybe it was somebody in Fantastic Four. There was somebody who was, um, as we talked about, just sort of an incidental, what was the term that you used in terms of a, a, a black man who, like, the whole point wasn't like, oh, here's a black man and here's his story about you know, being black in America, but just, oh no, here's a professional who happens to be here at, who's ha- here for some reason. And he's a black man because black people have jobs too and are out in the world. Yeah. I think I said casual diversity or something like that. There you go. There you go. The way you introduce this character, the way you introduced this character here is you said, oh yes, he's the, you know, uh, Captain America was rescued by a black serviceman in World War II and now his younger brother is here. And so he's going into doing that. Uh, it was, it's never really mentioned that Jim is black, if I'm not mistaken. Like, you know, he clearly is. But what I'm saying is that this, I believe, might be the first named character who is black and not just, and and not to make a statement in and of itself. You know what I mean? So like we had Gabe, Gabe Jones in Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos, Uh, Who, you know, is very much supposed to be there as part of the, you know, we've got someone from every part of American society in here and we all come together to fight the Nazis. And, you know, that's sort of part of making a real point there. This is one of those things by making a point by not making it a point. You know what I mean? And Um, then you ruin it by having Captain America call him boy on the last panel. Uh, you know what they're trying. (laughs) Uh, yeah, you know, anything that's going to be considered, uh, you know, um, trailblazing at the time is always going to look cringy in at least some ways, uh, years later. It's just, uh, it's a hazard of the, it's a hazard of that kind of game. And actually didn't, I think I've heard that supposedly Jack Kirby wrote a novel that never got published and people who have read the manuscript were like, Oh no, it it was not his best work. And it's better that it's not seen among other things. As I've heard, I have never read it. I've never seen it. I've just heard third hand from this stuff, but apparently it was uh, (laughs) the plot that was in this adventure novel um, involved some real racist Chinese tropes about, uh, you know, invasions of the, of the, you know, the civilized world or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, once again, you're trying, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, uh, People are people are going to be a problem. I'm sure I'll be a problem later. People will be like, oh, Steve Berg, you know, he yeah, he this, that and the other good stuff. But I mean, uh, you know, he you know, who knows what ate meat or whatever, <laughs> something that in the future might be. Who knows? All right. So uh, overall, I really like this story. Yep. So back to me. So we're doing Tales to Astonish next. Is that correct? Yes. All right, so we start off with Giant Man, sensationally superb story by Stan Lee, absolutely adorable art by Carl Burgos. I'm going to call shenanigans on that one here. Uh, Incredibly imaginative inking by Chick Stone and logically lovable lettering by S. Rosen. So it starts out with Giant Man practicing his shrinking and growing to get it faster 
as you know as fast as possible <laughs> and wasp is timing him with just like an analog stopwatch she says congratulations blue eyes you just broke your own record you shrunk to ant size and then zipped up again in less than one microsecond which she measured with something that looks like a pocket watch. <laughs> so, okay, sure, why not? Um, then, uh, you know, Giant Man is doing some training by putting these heavy weights on himself. Instead of just, you know, being steel weights, he somehow uses size stuff to go ahead and shrink stuff down smaller so it's got the same weight and a smaller, I don't know, anyway. One way or the other, um... Then some cops come by. Yeah, the chief wants to see it at the headquarters. So then Giant Man just leaps out the window. Of course, he still has that sort of skyhook thing. And apparently Jan did not remember because she freaks out when he jumps out the window. But then he somehow seems to fly here. I don't know exact. I guess he's supposed to be using that little ring like a trapeze swing and he's launching himself from it but it just does not work visually at all so we end up spending three pages getting across town this is in a 12 page story just the amount of rigmarole that giant man always has to go through to get himself across town just gets more and more ridiculous and has continued to get more and more ridiculous in the 20 five issues or so we've had of this book and here that we are spending three of our 12 pages just getting across town is just it's intolerable. It is intolerable <laughs> the amount of wasted space this book is using and has always used to get our hero around well, town. If we assume that Stan Lee was just giving sort of a bare sketch of what should be happening here, uh, you know, perhaps Carl Burgos is like, oh, God, I got to eat up pages somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, let's just go ahead and do that. So anyway, apparently there is a guy who's running a protection racket who is known as the Wrecker, who always wears a suit and a hood over his head. And basically this story is a rehash of the Protector story uh, from the first year of the Marvel Universe, really. Jan and Hank go and buy or lease or rent or whatever, a store in this area that's being shaken down by the Wrecker. And then, of course, the Wrecker's goons come by and shake them down for their money. They, Hank and Jan, kick their butts. They just go ahead and literally kick these two uh, collection guys out on the street, not using any of their powers. They're just, you know, using judo. Yeah, so all the rest of the people on the block were like, hey, that's great. We really like what you did, but you do know that you basically just uh, put a target on your back, right? <laughs> this guy's going to come back and kill you, and it'll probably be worse to us, too. Giant Man then goes and uh, finds the wrecker. They're having a big fight. He sprays some uh, insecticide at Jan because apparently she's an actual insect. Then uh, at one point, the to be wrecker. Fair, had to- I would not like to have, uh, you know, if I were tiny, I would not like to have a regular size can of DDD shot in my face or being the size I am now, I would not like to have a gigantic can of DDD shot in my face. Uh, when I was, uh, I think, between high school and college, uh, I went down to uh, Hilton Head with some friends for a, uh, you know, weekend uh, getaway thing. And at one point, we were coming back to our condo, our vacation condo, and we got stuck behind the mosquito spraying truck. Yes. I went and, to, when there was the West Nile virus panic, I one time was stuck in New York City behind the mosquito spraying truck for like 20 blocks and I couldn't figure out how to get away from it. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think we were driving my car, which had the uh, air conditioning was broken and it was summer in Hilton Head. So we kind of had to have the windows down 
And we were stuck behind this thing for like half an hour. Probably caused all sorts of uh, brain damage or whatever. Anyway, yeah, so then the Wrecker has a bear trap that is snapping Giant Man's ankle, but then he uses what he was doing earlier to shrink down and grow up, grow again so quickly that the uh, thing doesn't snap on his ankle. It's all pretty dumb. Yeah, he defeats the Wrecker, and then he and Jan kiss because he thinks that she's hurt. And so he's uh, he kisses her, and then he's like, oh, um, no, I was trying to revive you with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And uh, she says, whatever you want to call it, Dreamboat, I hope it becomes habit-forming. Uh, and then at the end, she's saying, now I know to make him kiss me more often, I'll pretend to be unconscious. <laughs> Yeah, what okay. a healthy relationship. Yes, <laughs> indeed, uh, completely. Okay. Wait, where you skipped over, it turned out who the wrecker is. So this is, oh, this whole right. issue is very much like, let's party like it's 1962. And this is like, like, remember the Marvel comics of 1962? Well, now you can relive them. And, you know, it turns out that the wrecker underneath the mask was the guy who sold us the sewer and told us about how bad the wrecker was, which was a sort of nonsensical twist that they had at the end of several comics back in 1962 and now it's uh it's all back they're uh yeah. you know and yeah this whole story is very similar to the story of the protector right down to hank starting his own storefront and yes. uh but now we have the wasp around and by far my favorite panel on this issue is on page eight where the wasp gets to use some the wasp just dressed as a smart modern woman gets to oh, use yeah. some judo to flip this guy over on top of her and it's a level of confidence that we Rarely get to see the Wasp use, or certainly Janet Van Dyne use for quite some time, and it is refreshing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so next, we get to the Incredible Hulk. A Titan rides the train. So we have seen uh, the leader in shadow, basically, before now. But we're going to go ahead and see him um, up close for the first time. Um, only Stan Lee could have written this monumental masterpiece. Only Steve Ditko could have drawn these powerful panels. Only Geo Bell could have inked this sensational saga, and only S. Rosen could have lettered his name S. Rosen. Back to that again here. Mm -hmm. So we then get the leader thinking about his origin story, and basically he was just a a laborer, a blue-collar laborer, who was working in a chemical research plant, and then a gamma-ray cylinder exploded doesn't seem like something you should have around in a chemical plant, but, you know, whatever. And uh, essentially, this treated him very much like uh, the Gamma Bomb did to Dr. Banner. We even have a panel that looks reminiscent of uh, the panel of Banner screaming. Then after that, this guy who, you know, was being described as just this sort of blue-collar laborer who didn't have much more uh, ambition or, you know, ability in life, uh, then when he's recovering in the hospital, is just reading books like nobody's business. He's just, you know, devouring them, can't, can't get enough. But then after a little bit of time, when it feels like he's gotten better, he then starts having this weird attack and he transforms into the leader. So he now has this big distended tall head um, and green skin. Did he have the mustache earlier? It looks like he spontaneously grows the mustache when he turns into the leader there. Uh, that does not seem to have been there moments before. <laughs> so. Yes. When they do the leader in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, who is really not of all of the dangling pot threads that have not paid off in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one of the most notable is the leader, where they do not have it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that he is an unintelligent person before he gets exposed to 
gamma radiation. Because in the Marvel Universe, he is a scientist who is helping out Banner from afar when Banner is in Brazil and then lures him to the United States, but really just, of course, wants to take the gamma stuff out of Banner and put it into himself. Although it's sort of it's sort of an accident that he falls and hits his head and the gloop sort of goes into his brain and turns Tim Blake Nelson into the leader in the final moments of that movie. And then that never pays off. Now, I did not finish She-Hulk, but they go ahead and they pay off various Hulk storylines there in that series. But I take it they do not pick up. There is no Tim Blake Nelson. There is no leader showing up in that series, I take it. I don't believe so. Um, and I, I suspect that might have to do with, once again, the whole universal distribution rights for the character of the Hulk. I'm guessing that there is a stable of characters in there that they can't use without having to, you know, have some negotiations with uh, Universal. This is just my guess. But, you know, I don't know, but they do have Thunderbolt Ross, so maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. we then see back on the missile base, uh, the Chameleon is still hanging around. We'd seen him earlier. So he has some plans that we're going to see uh, panning out. Meanwhile, Thunderbolt Ross and uh, Glenn Talbot still don't trust Banner, but they've got to keep working with him. But they're going to keep their eyes on him. They're sure he's going to trip up and they're going to prove that he's a traitor or in league with the Hulk or whatever. So we see that the uh, humanoid that the leader has built is very, very powerful. He can bend iron, but it will turn out he is also spongy and soft. So he's simultaneously very, very strong and very difficult to damage because it's like a big block of like foam rubber, basically. Yeah. So bullets go right through him without any damage. You know, you try to punch him and the Hulk's fist just bounces back again. It's it's uh, quite an interesting foil for the Hulk here. And we're going to see these humanoids over and over again throughout the years. I've always loved the humanoids. Yeah. I think it's just... It's just a brilliant way to do it. Instead of just going like a villain who is, you know, bigger and stronger and tougher than the Hulk, having having a villain who is also big and strong like him, but spongy and 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 just, <laughs> ew, just gooey and gooey and spongy and slippery. I think it's just a perfect way to counter the Hulk and uh, frustrate the Hulk, which is uh, they get so much good use out of over the years. I'm on the same page. The leader sends the humanoid down from a helicopter to try and take this new weapon that uh, Banner has designed. And so when this happens, once again, you know, Talbot does not trust him at all. He thinks that Banner must be part of this. So he locks him into another train car room. And then so, of course, at that point, he is stressing out. And so that turns him into the Hulk. He then goes out through the side and is able to start fighting the humanoid. But as I said, he just sort of bounces off of him and isn't really able to do much real damage to him. Now, one of my least favorite parts of this issue is on page seven when the humanoid yeah. flings the flings Hulk away and it was, they're going under a bridge. And so the humanoid throws uh, the Hulk up, thinking he'll smack against the bridge. The leader says, my timing was perfect. This will be the end of the mindless monster. But the Incredible Hulk is not so easily defeated. Possessing the mightiest muscles of any living mortal, he performs a seemingly impossible feat by sheer brute power alone. By actual muscle control, he forces his flying body to lift itself up over the solid stone trestle. 
Um, so this is almost revisiting the whole, you know, Jack Kirby thinks he can fly uh, thing again here. And uh, once I, again, you have Stanley powerfully contorting himself in the words to go like, no, this may look like flying. It is not. Let me explain in exhausting detail <laughs> how, why this may look like flying, but it is not. And uh, how he is twisting his muscles to change his direction in midair. But he is able to get his feet on a cornice on the viaduct there and then is able to hurl himself over the bridge and land back on the train. So then, yeah, the uh, weapon is coming loose. The uh, the te- weapon that was on the train for testing is uh, shaking its way loose. And uh, so the Hulk ends up knocking it off the train to keep it from being captured by the leader. And of course, then the Hulk turns back into Banner. Soldiers come by and find Banner shirtless out in the desert after he had been locked into that boxcar. So they then arrest him, and the leader apparently had never heard of the Hulk before today, which seems a little bit difficult to believe. He then is thinking, I've got to learn more about this guy. He says, I must destroy him. But then he goes back and forth in this issue, it seems, about either I've got to destroy him or I've got to recruit him to my side. Because, you know, we're both gamma monsters, and so we must be in league with each other. So he seems to go back and forth on that. And so, yeah, we end with Bruce Banner in, a, in the brig, basically. Uh, well, I know, is the brig just on a ship? No, I think that's in the army too, right? I don't know. We could ask our cousin Richard. Okay. Uh, who was an MP for a while. So that uh, that's true. He, he, he would definitely know. Overall, I like this. You know, I like where this series is going. I like the feel of it. I like the pacing of it. The leader is a, a villain who will stand the test of time. Uh, as are the humanoids. We're trucking along here, and I really like it. Yeah, I think this is the best issue we've had so far of the Hulk in his revived book. I think that the leader is his all-time greatest villain, who gets a wonderful introduction here. I, you know, I do like the essential irony of they're going like, okay, you know, the Hulk was a weak person who got exposed to gamma radiation and became a strong person, and that the leader was a dumb person who got exposed to gamma radiation and became a very smart person, which I do like the essential irony of it, and him being the flip side of the Hulk, him being the reverse of the Hulk. He is a his natural arch nemesis. I always like fights on trains. I always like people trying to shove each other's heads into the upcoming bridges that the train is passing under. I'm just a sucker for that every time it shows up in any movie or comic, and I love it here. I I just love this issue. I think it's great. I think it's because our dad was a train buff, and every time that Silver Streak would come on, we would, uh, you know, we'd have that on. (laughs) Every time it came on TV, my dad would be watching Silver Streak. That's where he picked that up from. Yes, I, on one of my first dates with Betsy, so when I met Betsy, she was like, I was like, how can you, you're a very beautiful woman, why are you attracted to me? And she's like... And she's like, she's like, well, you know, I, uh, I have certain types of people I'm attracted to. She said, you know, the actor I'm probably most attracted to is Gene Wilder. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, I don't look much like Gene Wilder, but I do look odd, and Gene Wilder looks odd. <laughs> and so, and I'm like, oh, well, you must love Silver Streak, his one movie where he really got to be a romantic action leading man. And she was like, no, I've never seen it. So then one of our first dates, we watched Silver Streak. Nice. I think you just gave our dad a copy of Silver Streak on DVD for Christmas. Yes, I did. Yeah, my favorite movies. And of course, the great Patrick McGowan is in it. So many of my favorite people are in that movie. Ah. And and oh, you want blackface? We've got blackface. <laughs> uh, oh, is that though? I thought that was... Was that there? Was that the movie with the blackface in it? Oh yes, it is. I thought that was stir crazy or something like that. Okay, 
Oh no, yeah, lots of black well, face. Well, yeah, well, you know, against they were trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although have you heard the story about him and uh, Richard Pryor and how they were doing this scene? Like how Richard Pryor was really having severe second thoughts about this as they were going into filming that scene. Yes. You've, you've heard this whole story? Yeah, just about how, you know, apparently it was going to be, it, it was going to be come off another way that would have aged very, very poorly. And Richard Pryor essentially brought up his concerns about being part of the scene that he thought would be harmful to the black community. And so he brought this up to Gene Wilder and Gene Wilder was like, okay, well, let's work on it. What, what, what can make this work for you? And uh, what we got is what came out of that. So yeah. Um, yeah, apparently it could have been much, much worse. Yeah. So I should say that my wife and I are about to have our 20th anniversary. So this was this, the last time I saw the movie then would have been when well, we first started going out in 2001. So the last time I saw this movie would have been 22 years ago. And oh, well, things have changed since then. So I'd be fascinated to know how I would react to it now. But yeah, uh, but yeah I, loved it. I thought you were going to say, did I know that Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor were briefly attached to play Power Man oh. and Iron Fist? <laughs> Uh, yes, I have heard that as well, but that was not where I was going with this. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh that is, uh, <laughs> one of the all time great Marvel cinematic universe. What ifs, uh, is what if they had, yeah, you know, I know they were never attached, but there was, there was one point serious negotiations about Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder playing Power Man and Iron Fist, which, oh, oh, if only I could go back and make that movie happen. <laughs> you have no idea how quickly I would make that happen. I mean, it would be terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it would not be the worst Iron Fist live action (laughs) adaptation ever. So, you know. Uh, Yeah, you can make you can definitely make that argument. Uh, I don't know. That that might have been worse. (laughs) I mean, come on. All right. So I guess we're moving on to X-Men, which will be yours. So we have the X-Men guest starring the Mighty Avengers. Once again, an issue where it's like, let's see what would happen for Heroes Fought. And says, and don't miss the return of Professor X. And wait till you meet Lucifer. It's like, and then you see this mysterious green alien uh, guy looking dude on the cover, uh, Lucifer. And it's like, oh, he's interesting. I wonder what his deal is. Well, not too fast. You're never going to find out what his deal is. You are eventually. I mean, it's several months later, we're going to find out kind of what he's doing. But it's very generic and not worth the time. Well, this issue wraps up his storyline, seemingly, without ever revealing anything about what his deal was. So, enter the Avengers, we see that, so you'll recall that Professor X was in a life-or-death situation in Europe, asked the X-Men to come visit him in Europe, come help save him from this life-or-death situation, so they go, yes, sir, right away, we will get on a cruise ship. (laughs) And they get on a cruise ship to cross the Atlantic, and I guess, I, you know, our mother recently was on Facebook talking about, like, Oh, here's a picture of several cruise ships parked in Manhattan. She was asking her siblings, remember when our mother, you know, went over to Ireland at some point, and I guess it was the late 50s or early 60s on a cruise ship. And I guess that was still like, like, even if you were going to Europe for a life and death situation, it's like, well, we're not going to fly. What do you think we are, Rockefeller? No, we're going to take a cruise ship. I assume that at that point, they were just referred to as ocean liners. That, you know, they didn't become cruise ships until the love boat, basically. That, you know, when you were actually using them for transportation. What they say is, our startling saga begins in the North Atlantic as a dangerous iceberg suddenly drifts into the path of a speeding superliner. 
So it's a speeding yeah. superliner. They almost hit an iceberg, but then Cyclops hits the iceberg with his beams, which you would think would be rather exhausting because that's a big job. And he is rather exhausted, goes back to the state room uh, where the other X-Men are there. And then he, Scott, meanwhile, is in mental contact with Professor X. So I feel like, again, we can go back and forth about how much Lee was writing, how much Kirby was writing. But it seems like Lee said to Kirby, like, okay, so then Professor X is exploring an underground cave in his wheelchair. And this puts Jack Kirby in a position where he's like, um, exploring an underground cave in his wheelchair? Um, okay, time to use my Kirby imagination to <laughs> imagine what sort of badass wheelchair he would need to be able to do that. And Kirby creates a wonderful badass tank tread wheelchair. Um, that is capable of exploring caves. And Professor Xavier eventually comes face-to-face -face with Lucifer. Lucifer sends a sentient dust devil. Even he cannot overcome the power of an artificial dust devil after Xavier it, it, scoops him like, up. It's like what? Like an eddy of wind in the western desert area? Like that's what you're talking about? Like yes. no, one can, no one can stand up to that? Okay. And sure. so uh, sucks him up away from his amazing chair into Lucifer's lab, but then it becomes like a solid sphere around him, which Xavier has to shoot his way out of with his gun gun. Then Xavier is going to shoot Lucifer, but then Lucifer says, if I'm harmed, the whole world is doomed. And Actually, we cut away. One thing visually that I did not notice before, and I'm just noticing this right now on page five, last panel, look at Lucifer's eyes. Yes. What is going on with those eyes? Indeed. Um, I mean, generally, Lucifer just looks like, as uh, as I think I said in the uh, episode that did not survive, uh, but, uh, you know, generally I think of Lucifer as looking like a dollar store Magneto. You know, um, it's just like, okay, uh, you know, whatever. But, uh, but yeah, those eyes do look really weird when you see him up close. So it turns out that, this whole fight with Lucifer is happening in a cave beneath a Bavarian village. Or Balkan. <laughs> what do do they have the Bavaria Balkan confusion yes, still going on here? Yes, uh, I forget exactly where, but yes, there was one place I noted. Oh, somewhere in a near a nearby Bavarian village, and but at one point here, when they're describing where the caves are, they say you know deep in the Balkan mountains or something like that. So uh, yeah, Bavaria. Balkans, whatever. They're the same. Same difference. So then the X-Men have been ordered there by Xavier. Oh, here it help. is. Sorry. It's on page four, panel one. I have finally located the hidden cave of Lucifer. Now, here, in the heart of the Balkans, I face my most crucial battle. And then there's a Bavarian village. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry for interrupting. Go on. So then uh, the X-Men have shown up in this village in their civvies to try to find Savior and help him. But then the Avengers show up too. The Avengers have been led there by Thor's hammer. Thor's hammer has been following strange impulses all the way from America to this village. And apparently he is detecting whatever Lucifer is up to. And he has led the Avengers there. Well, then you get to a very funny sequence where they run into an American tourist who is sort of shocked to find them there and is sort of freaked out by them. And then they tell him he'd better leave. And he takes off uh, when the wasp lands on its little jaunty driving hat, he zooms away in terror, uh, arrives where the X-Men are in their civvies and is explaining to them like, quick, call the police, the army, anybody. There's monsters back there, creatures with wings, hammers, shields, even giants. And then they're like, oh, we'll check it out, mister. And then Warren 
rips off his shirt and flies away with his wings. And the guy's like, oh, no. Wow. What have I gotten into? <laughs> Next, I'll be seeing pink elephants and gremlins gangway. I'm taking the next plane back to Ohio. And uh, that, that, that is a delightful sequence. <laughs> is, yeah. Fantastic. So then we cut back to Xavier, who now was first explained to him that if my heartbeat stops, then there is a giant bomb here, which is well drawn by Kirby, that will go off and blow up the entire planet if my heart stops. So you cannot use your gun gun on me like you wanted to. And But of course, have Xavier, the X-Men ever murdered anyone before? <laughs> I mean, they've lobotomized plenty of people. But I mean, you know, it's like, oh, if my heart should stop, it's like, oh, we can't do anything to him. <laughs> what if i can't murder him then we later they then say oh if anything happens to my heartbeat you know so uh, it's weird. well it's safe <laughs> quickly realizes like yeah i've got mental powers i didn't need to shoot him with a gun anyway like what was i even thinking but first lucifer tries to send a force bolt to go kill the x-men xavier has to outrun it uh now of course his psychic self can just fly uh, well, you would think it wouldn't even have to fly. You think he could just speak directly into their minds. But there's an actual funny Kirby panel of Xavier physically outrunning the force bolt um, with his mental projection leaping across the countryside. He warns the X-Men just in time that they should scatter and disperse because this bolt's about to hit them. They become the X-Men. Always, of course, important to humiliate Jean whenever you can. And there is a wonderfully humiliating bit where she is Marvel Girl reporting Cyclops. Why? What's wrong? He says, look out. You'll stumble into that hole in front of you. And she thinks, <laughs> oh, there's not enough time to sidestep. But by telepathically putting that log over it, I can step down in safety. Well done, Marvel Girl. So yeah. Jean Grey dealing with all sorts of problems like holes. But so then... <laughs> Holes that it's easier to go ahead and use her brain to place a piece of wood over than, I mean, she's clearly like three steps away when, when this yeah. happens. And she's like, I, I can't, I can't move. Yeah, yes, it's, <laughs> it, it's a problem. So then Xavier tells the X-Men, the Avengers have shown up to help, which would be good, but they're going to, they might stop Lucifer's heart, which would blow up the whole world. So you have to stop the Avengers. So as excuses for that Stanley comes up with to get the heroes to fight each other, this one isn't so bad. This is a genuine misunderstanding. And uh, you can understand why this could come to blows. So it leads to a massive fight as the two teams are just walloping each other and have a lot of fun doing so. Top of page 13, you've got a great huge panel of everybody fighting each other simultaneously. Meanwhile, Xavier is like, oh, right, I've got mental powers. Why don't I just use those against Lucifer? Which he does and defeats him quite handily and easily. <laughs> Makes him yes. go unconscious. His heart's still fine. Xavier then is able to tell everybody like, oh, oh, stop fighting Problems all taken care of. I forgot I had powers that could easily handle the situation. <laughs> they go ahead and stop fighting. And you would think at this point, the X-Men would go like, okay, we've just heard the story from Xavier. And it turns out we really need like expert weapons people. Uh, do you <laughs> Avengers happen to have any weapons experts who could help us defuse this bomb? But no, instead they go like, uh, I've run out of my 10 minutes. Instead they go like, Okay, Avengers, you just go home. We'll take care of this. And you have a funny panel on page 16 where Kirby has to draw in one panel, the Avengers go home. And he shows them all sort of marching out of the panel, like, do, 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 we are going home. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how they got there is never addressed or how they're leaving, you know, because no. always in the Avengers own book, there's all these things about like, oh, they have to get all get there separately. And so it's like, so are we now going to have, uh, you know, Captain America going to an American army base and getting a cargo plane to take him home? <laughs> and, you know, Hank and Jan stowing away on a plane once again. Yeah. 
Who knows? But we do hear the the wasp go, it wasn't always. I did get to meet that dreamy angel. And then she thinks, oh, I'm wasting my time as usual. Hank is too smart to act jealous. So it's sort of old school wasp there, which I guess makes sense because it's Kirby wasp and Kirby hasn't been doing wasp for a while. So then the X-Men then go down into the cave to go meet back up with Professor X. Professor X is explaining that before Whisper wakes up, we've got to just disable this bomb. He sort of climbs up on the bomb, which is tricky without the use of his legs, and is figuring out exactly how the innards work so he can tell Scott exactly where to shoot his I-beams to dismantle the bomb, which they do. And then Lucifer wakes up. And this is another thing that has become a real sickness with Marvel Comics. This has just become a real problem. And then, like, they're just not putting these people in jail. And it's like, we can't kill them, and we can't put them in jail. So we just have issue after issue where it's like, well, now that we've defeated you, you'll feel so humiliated that you'll never do anything evil again. So goodbye. You can go home now. And it's like, yeah. ugh, that's such a lame way of ending an issue. Like, put him in jail or kill him or have them get sucked into another dimension or something. But don't <laughs> just have, like, the, you know, they go, you you have merely seen a diabolical scheme go up in smoke, but I have been deprived of the use of my legs all these years due to you. Our account is not yet settled. And now, Go. Then Lucifer, he's smart enough to go, then why am I not harmed? Why am I free to leave? And Xavier has to explain, because we X-Men are pledged never to cause entry to a human being, no matter what the provocation. It is enough that you have been defeated for the first time in your evil career. It is enough that you will always know there is no place on Earth that is too remote to escape the retribution of the X-Men. And then Bobby, Iceman, thinks, logically enough, I'd still like to know who he really is, but... I guess the prof will tell us in his own good time. But even though this menace has seemingly ended, <laughs> there's never been any explanation of who Lucifer is. This issue right. seemingly wraps up the storyline without ever revealing who Lucifer was or what his deal was or how he caused Xavier the use of his legs or anything. It's just, it's so tremendously frustrating. And indeed, we get to see Lucifer do very few evil things. Just a tremendously lame villain. He's just there, man. He doesn't have a thing. He doesn't get to do his thing. He doesn't have an explanation of, you know, motivation or Weltanschung or any sort of a, you know, reason for being. It is just tremendously lame. However, it is fun to get to see the X-Men fight the Avengers. And there are other fun elements of the book, especially the poor tourist. Great Kirby Stone art and a fun X-Men versus Avengers issue. But a frustrating issue. Certainly the whole sequence with the tourist is by far the best part of this issue. Um, and that's not necessarily damning with faint praise. That actually is a really genuinely great sequence in uh, in early Marvel Comics here. So our final issue of the evening. Avengers number something. What is it here? <laughs> Avengers number 12. This Hostage Earth. And so, once again, as you talked about here, we are having uh, just sort of a remixing of various elements in the Marvel Universe at this point. Right here, we are getting the Avengers fighting the Fantastic Four's first foe, the Mole Man and his Moloids that you can see in the background on the cover. So, we start off the issue, Giant Man gets an alert from his aunts, Jan is saying, I know he's serious, but I mean, it just feels so ridiculous when he just has to go talk to his aunts instead of, you know, doing other stuff. So um, he goes and gets this message and they're saying that it's like really, really important. We'll have to, uh, you know, get the Avengers together immediately because this is some kind of big deal. 
And she's like, come on, for a bunch of ants, we're going to call all of them immediately? That just seems embarrassing. So then he does it, and all the Avengers show up, and all of them are just like, this is ridiculous. We are not going to listen to this. Your ants are telling you we have to go do something. Who cares what's happening with the ants? Uh, even Thor is sort of uh, uncharacteristically glib about the whole thing. So all of the Avengers are just like, all right, you know, um, fine. We're just going to go. You do whatever you're going to do. We're not going to have your back. We then see that the Mole Man is down in his subterranean kingdom, and he has a new plan to destroy the surface world, where he's got something that will speed up the rotation of the Earth in a way that will not be noticed um, by anybody until it's too late. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that the, that animals will uh, be aware of. Of course, I think that all sorts of scientific administrations would figure out very, very quickly <laughs> suddenly the rotation of the Earth sped up, but that's neither here nor there. Yes. I will point out that at the bottom of page four, even though we once again have Don Heck, Dick Ayers art, which usually is not quite good, I do really like the second to last panel on page four, where... Jan is also snubbing Hank on this whole thing. She says, I'm due at the hairdresser in 15 minutes. I'm sure a big, strong Avenger like you doesn't need help to visit some ants. But something about just I just love the character of, of her as communicated in that image there. You know, once again, since we're going to be having more and more criticism of Don Heck as things go forward, I'm still going to call it out when it's nice. Heck's two tiny wastes have seemingly gotten worse yeah, as he's true. been going on. And uh, I think that panel is, is, you know, I just look at drawings like that and it, it makes my throat constrict because I'm like, oh, I, I can't breathe. I can't breathe looking at that picture. Her belt is so tiny. It's, it's not as bad as Pepper's Waste on the splash page of this month's Tales to Astonish. It was, I'm sorry, Tales yes. of Suspense. Um, but then also I noticed that on page four, panel four and page five, panel one, both of those look like Don Heck was referencing some sort of cheesecake pinup photos uh, yeah. for Jan. Uh, they just look very characteristically pulled from a girly magazine somewhere. She isn't going to have his back either, so uh, Hank goes alone down into the anthill and then finds out that, hey, it's Mole Man and his Moloids. So it's him alone against all these folks, and he puts up a valiant fight. But he is eventually, not defeated, but what's the word I'm looking for? Subdued and tied up like Gulliver by the Lilliputians. Meanwhile, at this point, things are evidence of what's going on at the Earth is starting to show up in various places. And showing up as like earthquakes and all sorts of stuff like that. The Leaning Tower of Pisa is about to fall over. Suspension bridges are starting to uh, wobble. And all the Avengers are like, hey, maybe we should have taken... Hank seriously. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is uh maybe we were a bunch of dicks. So I was talking about the uh the art uh and you know when it was good and when it was bad. One thing I will say is that on page I think this is eight, panel three, the inking of the sort of earth through which Wasp is projecting herself is just atrocious. That sort of grid, that kind of hash lines, vertical and horizontal. Just what is that supposed to be communicating? It's just, yeah, awful. Yeah, it's, it's trash. But we do see the reappearance of a an invention that we saw earlier. You know, lots of times we see these inventions. We're like, why don't they use this all the time? Uh, well, here's one where they do come back to it with that projectoscope or whatever they call it. So um, Jan is able to go 
you project her image down into the heart of the earth and see what's going on. See this, the mole man, the moloids, they've got Hank, all this sort of stuff. So she then comes back and says, hey, we need to go down there. Captain America says, Iron Man, what about the new transistorized foxhole diggers the army just ordered from Tony Stark? And Rick says, sure, even I heard of them. <laughs> Iron Man's like, I must be slipping. I invented them myself and I forgot all about them. They're just what we need. So anyway, they go and get these things and dig down into the earth to help Hank. So they get down there and we get to see a lot of nice action sequences of uh, Captain America um, demolishing moloids. And Jan is trying to, but once again, there's some gas that's going to go ahead and get rid of her. But then Iron Man's able to save her with his repulsor rays by repulsing the uh, the gas. Once again, give give Jan some respect here, people. Big fight scene, lots of interesting stuff that's going so on. I should point out, on page 11, we have another panel from the Marvel No Prize book. Oh, do we? I don't know if they fix this in yours, but uh, first panel on page 11, we've got this, you know, as Marvel No Prize panels go, this one is a much more pedestrian mistake than they usually point out. But you just have the Moloid is shooting a flamethrower at Iron Man, and Iron Man is supposed to be thinking this, but instead the Moloid is thinking it. The Moloid oh. is thinking, I'm being sprayed with a flamethrower. If it heats my iron kimono much more, I'll roast in here. And uh, so then they took the time. I'm not sure it was worth their notice, but they took the time in the Marvel No Prize book to ridicule that for having the Moloid thinking that instead of Iron Man. They did not fix that. That is still that way. Let's see. And it gets a little confusing here because they're down in the core of the Earth. And then suddenly Captain America and the rest of the Avengers are all back up on the surface. And I'm not. No, just Captain America and Rick go back up to the surface. Right. Meanwhile, there's an exhaust fan they just turned on to get rid of some smoke. But yeah, how exactly Captain America and Rick get back to the surface that quickly, I am not entirely sure. But uh, one way or the other, they do, even though we don't see it, it happens off panel, which always bugs me a little bit with these things. That's part of the whole point of comic book art is that you're supposed to see on the panel what is happening and not have to be told about it later. Captain America goes and beats up this big, beefy guy, and uh, I actually forget what that whole little side, tra- side trick was about. I guess he went to get some supplies for what they're doing. So then he comes back with whatever technology he was supposed to grab. Yeah, it just gets really confusing here. Um, <laughs> one way or the other, uh, the Red Ghost shows up suddenly out of nowhere and proposes an alliance with the Mole Man. First of all, the Mole Man's like, Red Ghost, this isn't even your thing. What are you even <laughs> doing here? This is a bizarre place for you to show up. Like, what can you even do for me? And the Red Ghost's like, oh, trust. And where where are your apes? (laughs) Where are your apes? And the Red Ghost is like, you just you just leave that to me. I you just don't worry about my where where my apes are, and you just don't worry about what I can do for you. There's plenty I can do for you. And in fact, he does nothing at all. (laughs) He he just shows up, is instantly defeated along with the mole man. And what is he doing in this comic? It is totally bizarre. Yes. On page 17, we have an interesting panel of Iron Man pulling a gun from the side panel of his uh, of his torso there, uh, which looks neat, but doesn't really seem to make that much sense. But then, yeah, once again, it's these things that are sort of off panel that kind of bother me. So on page 18, panel two, meanwhile, the macabre mole man, as yet unaware of his prisoner's escape, prepares to renew his attack upon the Avengers. He says, these hyper-ionic rockets can stop anything that lives. 
but it just looks like it's something on a TV screen. It it just, I can't quite make out what's going on there. Again, I just don't think that Don Heck is cut out for a team book. It's just no, not it's really his not. thing. And Dick Ayers is not his best anchor either. One way or the other, eventually they, uh, Iron Man literally wraps up the Moloids uh, in some kind of metal sheeting. And then uh, the Mole Man and the Red Ghost uh, get away in some sort of a vehicle here. Or they think they do. They're trying to get away. But then Giant Man stops their escape. And uh, yes, and then at the end, uh, the Mole Man and the Red Ghost turn on each other because they both think the other one was useless and dead weight to them. So at the end, it says, so you see, nobody's perfect. But if but if you're a true Marvel madman, then you knew that all the time, didn't you? Yeah, this is not the best issue. And this is kind of the direction the Avengers are going to be going in, unfortunately. Yeah, this is a truly terrible issue. There's absolutely nothing to recommend about this issue. It is just awful art throughout, just a completely nonsensical story. You know, I I, I felt for you as you suffered through that, trying to make sense of it, um, why Captain America is suddenly back on the surface fighting goons. It makes absolutely no sense. Throwing in the red ghost on page 15 is just a complete Hail Mary pass. Like, okay, you know, what What are we even doing here? Makes no sense. Never, ever should you see the red ghost without a super apes. They are your better half, red ghost. Never go anywhere without them. This is <laughs> This issue is just a complete incompetent mess that falls apart and should be quickly forgotten. So a couple other things I took some uh, visual notes on. Uh, on page seven, uh, when the Avengers are realizing that they had made a mistake and should have believed uh, Giant Man, they're having their big uh, roundtable meeting, and they're all saying, oh, man, we should have been better at this. So then Jan says, well, as this week's acting chairman, oh, okay, good. She actually has some responsibility. As acting chairman, I put it to a vote. What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> Not as acting chairman, I suggest we do this can we put this plan of action to a vote? No, it's just like, uh, yeah, so I propose, I ask the guys what to do. <laughs> but, then, uh, but then, to be fair, she does then come up with the best solution. Iron Man says, you can't exactly take a bus to the center of the Earth. And she says, there is a way. Remember our image projector? And he says, of course. Captain's like, image projector? She says, we used it in the past in our search for the Hulk. So she does get to cleverly come up with the solution. That is a good point. Uh, another point, when Mole Man sees that she has projected herself down there, he's saying, alert the guards. There is another at the gates. I sense that this one is a female. <laughs> it's like, what? Uh, and do they think a girl can succeed where Giant Man has failed? Well, we hope so. Oh, yes. In terms of the Avengers and how they get to various places, there was one uh, panel here where... <laughs> And once again, all this stuff happening off panel with um, within minutes, a speedy, specially chartered jet delivers the remaining two team members to the chosen site. Say, Cap, who pays for that chartered jet? Us or the Avengers Petty Cash Fund? We can discuss that at our next meeting, little lady. Right now, I have a hunch we'll soon be facing more pressing problems. But <laughs> once again, it's just... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Also, there's once again with Jan not re really being treated with respect uh, at one point when uh, Giant Man is imprisoned and she finds him. Oh, Hank, you're alive. He says, look out, honey, behind you. Power dive, Jan, as I've taught you now. And then perfect. 
Now head for that forward switch on the control panel below you. She says, yes, sir, boss. And then he says, push it harder, harder. Okay, that's getting <laughs> a little creepy. Uh, it's the only thing that will free me. I'm bathed in an anti-cybernetic ray in here. She says, I can't do it. It's too heavy. It, uh, there, it's open. But uh, one way or the other, the whole thing about like, oh, yes, well, you can save the day if you follow my instructions to the letter as I bark them at you. It's yes, like, come on, people. So frustrating. One of Stanley's worst instincts as a writer is to have the men telling the women what to do. Uh, this issue of the Avengers is not great, and so we're ending on a low note. <laughs> yes, you know, but... may, may, maybe we should start putting this back in alphabetical order now that this is no longer really so much of a headlining book. <laughs> we can just fizzle out every week as we uh, as we end with a week Avengers book. But um, there were some. There were, there were, I would say probably the best book this month would be The Hulk. Um, the Hulk uh, has a classic game-changing story this month. Nobody else really knocked it out of the park. If we want to go back to our last episode, The Fantastic Four versus Gideon was, was an excellent issue. But this was a okay month for Marvel Comics. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, as as we've talked about, our whole thing is sort of going back and looking at how many duds that existed back in these early days, but they just keep on chugging on through it and just like, okay, that doesn't work. Let's do this this time. And, you know, they eventually uh, accumulate enough good stuff that uh, they build the Marvel Universe that we know and love. So, uh, yes. but, you know, those 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 misses are a part of that building process. And so... Um, that's why I still like going back and reading some of those things. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, um, hopefully, once again, this uh, episode we have just recorded will be problem-free. Certainly, you did not sound like Max Headroom today, so uh, hopefully that means that things have turned out just fine. Of course, now I'm having this panicking thing like, did I hit the record button? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> I just went back and double-checked, but I almost had a heart attack for a second. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. So we hope to have David Baldeon back on in a way that uh, our beloved listeners will be able to actually hear. Uh, and I've also got a couple other folks that I want to uh, have on, some other friends uh, who are uh, comics professionals in one way, shape, or form, to be on in coming months as well. That would be great. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We always appreciate it. I don't know if this will still be true by the time this episode comes out, but at the moment, uh, we're having another COVID spike around here, so I've gone back to wearing a mask when I'm dealing close with people. Take care of yourselves out there, everybody, between that and all sorts of other stuff going on in this modern world. Uh, so stay safe out there, and uh, we hope to see you back here again next episode. Great. See you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.